Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 8th, 2021, and that just, I know it's been 2021 for a while, but just saying it right there kind of was a little weird feeling that it's April 2021. Um, Today we're going to do a roundtable topic discussion. This is uh, some stuff from you guys and some stuff I just wanted to talk about and some follow-up from the roundtable show that I did Monday as well. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. Mobcoin is here. Yeah, Mobcoin. Like, hey, you want an offer you can't refuse? No, it's really it's mobile coin, but it's Mobcoin. I wrote a short article on it today that was really a, a, a social media post with some speculation in it. And dun-dun-dun, Jack was wrong, but I'm very happy to be wrong. I'm going to tell you about it anyway, and I've left the article up, including my note at the end saying, gee, I was wrong, here's how easy it was to determine that I was wrong, and I knew it was that easy. I even said in the article it would be that easy, but I didn't do it because, well, I thought it was a good thought experiment. I think we still learn from my analysis of Mobcoin, and even though Mobcoin doesn't do what I said it did, which was a bad thing, sort of, kind of, I'm guessing or betting that sooner or later there will be a so-called privacy coin that will do exactly what I said because, frankly, if I was trying to solve a specific problem for cryptocurrency projects right now, it would be what I would do to solve the problem. Now, I'm going to say before we get there, I wouldn't try to solve the problem. But if I were trying to solve the problem, it's what I would do. I would deal with the problem. Yeah, you'll see when I get there when we talk about mob coin. <laughs> When it comes to so, the so-called vaccine being an experimental gene therapy, I was challenged on this by a number of people, including one guy whose credential is, my wife is a scientist, okay? And it is not an experimental gene therapy, it is a vaccine. I have 100% conclusive, total complete proof that the mRNA technique used in the Moderna and other vaccines using the mRNA technique is an experimental gene therapy. In black and white, in controvertical proof, and I thank Tom, who helps take care of my server and all that, for spoon-feeding this to me, because I didn't have the energy to go out and get it. But when I give you this, the argument is done. It's done. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. Doesn't even mean that it's bad. It just means it's not a vaccine, and they're lying when they tell you that it is. I have Again, I have proof. You can go read it for yourself. And the source is... The company that makes it. In an official filing to the United States government, check and mate, we'll cover that when we get to it. Then I was just thinking about this this morning. How often I say things about how to think about making money, how to think about wealth. Um, things like I said in the very long Miyagi Morning video I did yesterday, which if you haven't seen, you'll hear on the Miyagi Morning's recap uh, over the weekend, uh, about Understanding financial literacy and things like how valuable something that is a tax deferment strategy is. And if you don't understand that, then you'll always be broke. And I've talked about a lot of different ways of looking at wealth. Not just from a tax standpoint, but from a work ethic standpoint. Uh, from a mindset standpoint. And I always get, well, that's easy for you to say. The thing is, 
This is the God's honest truth, folks. All the things I say now, I first learned them and started saying them when I was, in fact, broke. And it's why I'm not broke anymore. So we're going to have a segment today called Poverty Consciousness versus the Mindset of Wealth. And I'll tell you about where I grew up and how that made me somebody with a poverty consciousness and what it took to strip it off of my being and change who and what I was. Then, do you really need to break your supplements into multiple doses? If not, why do I do it? And the answer is it depends. So this is a follow-up from last week, and I have another... Th th these two little bullet points will be quick, like two minutes at the most. But I have a quick update on the quercetin dosage and why I don't say much more about green tea extract and selenium, because a couple of people ask questions about those things. Uh, I have a question on my thoughts on Vin Armani, and I guess... Uh, 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 Pete has uh, started picking that up as well using the term the dim age. Is it really anything new? Or is it just a new angle on it? I don't mean Vin's angle is new, right? Or Pete Quinones, I don't believe his angle that he's kind of working a lot with Vin now is new. But I mean, is just the angle that we're seeing it from new? Or have we always lived in a dim age? At least in all time that there's been, you know, Statism and control of human beings. We'll talk about that a bit. Um, and I have a question on, is second, citizen, second citizenship worth the cost? I think this is another big it depends. And then my final segment today is, why do you trust known liars? And it's a serious question to end this episode on. We're going to do all of that more in just a moment. I want to start out today with a quote, and this is by Michael Saylor, uh, who is very well known now in the Bitcoin space. I would say back in uh, like October last year, if you said, do you know who Michael Saylor is to most Bitcoin enthusiasts? They would have said, no. And now he's like the, the Bitcoin champion, right? He's the guy everybody wants to hear from because he's saying what people want to hear. And it also seems like he's right. But he was saying this quote that I have for you today. And I heard this in a, 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 an interview with him I recently recommended that everybody listen to. And I, I really like it. I'm like, I'm going to use that. And then this morning, uh, one of one of our regular listeners and community members, long-term member of the community, sent me this quote and said, you should probably use this quote. And I'm like, I got to use it today then, because if I was already thinking that, right? But he was talking, He was again, he was making a case for Bitcoin here. But I don't think you have to, I don't know what your other answer would be. But I do think that this quote applies to exactly how we're being controlled and have been controlled by banks by the oligarchs, by government, for a very, very, very long time. He said in this interview, the road to serfdom consists of working exponentially harder in order to earn a currency exponentially weaker. And there's always been some truth to this, but ever since 1913 with the establishment of the Federal Reserve, And even before they went completely off the gold standard under Nixon in 71, they had the ability to expand the currency supply pretty much at will, and since 71, exponentially at will, in the words of Michael Siller. And this is a common tactic that's used all the time in a totally different place. And then we'll get to there in a second. But I do want you to think about that. If you want to get more energy from an entity, let's say a gerbil in a wheel, right? And let's say that gerbil running in that wheel turns a coil that makes electricity. And so we're, we're using, we're making gerbil power. To get more power from the gerbil, you only have one play. 
and that is to make the gerbil run a little bit harder, a little bit faster, or for a little bit longer, right? So maybe the gerbil runs an hour a day, and you can't, like the gerbils reach maximum speed, but if you want to get, you know, 15% more power out of them, you can have them run for 15 more, you know, 20, 25% more, you can have them run for an hour and 15 minutes. So how do you get the gerbil to run faster or longer without killing the gerbil? And so it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate act. And that's what the targeted inflation rate of 3% is. It's making the gerbils, you and me, run a little bit faster for a little bit less or a little bit longer for a little bit less or a little bit longer for the same amount. And if we're running longer for the same amount every year over and over and over again, all of our goals, all of our hopes and dreams of one day being in the retirement commercial where you walk down the beach with your pants rolled up in your 70s but you're perfectly healthy, get further and further away. And you can never afford the things that you really want because you have to keep running. And if you could afford the things that you wanted and stop running, you would stop running and you'd retire early. And that means that you would unplug from the matrix and stop giving them your life energy. So that's the game. So whether you see Bitcoin as your solution or not, you need a solution to that problem. Because at this point in our history, you are not, repeat, not going to save enough money to quit. If that's all you're doing is saving money, you're never going to earn enough to be done. Or when you are done, you'll be done because you're ready to fall over and die but you're not quite there yet, so you'll live on whatever you have, whatever meager existence you have, whatever Social Security plus some money you've saved buys you at that point. So we have to work this from multiple angles. I think intelligent asset management, like cryptocurrency, is one. But it's also about let's get ourselves out from under the expense side of the equation. Let's also work on providing our own needs without having it actually to require necessarily monetary energy. So that's just the mindset I want to go into today's episode with. So real quick, on monetary energy, one way you can start to balance the scales is you can get more for less money instead of less for more money. And one way you can do that is to leverage discounts. And I have that for you in a thing called the Member Support Brigade. It's how you can support my show and how I give back. So the way it works is you sign up to be a member. There's some cool stuff there, but, you know, the main benefit is discounts. And I hear from people sometimes like, well, I'm in Japan. Will this really help me? And my answer is no. I'm sorry. It really won't. The majority of the discounters I have, it's only going to help you in the United States. That's just the honest truth. Um, if you want to join anyway, I appreciate it. But And I think some of them do discount in Canada but and ship there, but the shipping may make the discount not you see what I'm saying um, it's this is really you know my majority of you guys are in the United States and so I built the program for the United States that's what I'm big enough to do uh, but if you want in on this program right now you can get it for 35 versus fifty dollars a year and I can't see how anybody can't get more than 35 dollars in discounts every year just by using the discounts so you end up with a net gain that's a positive monetary energy concept. So if you want to join this week, and it is this week only for the sales, not going to be a long-running sale. It goes goes away Monday night, next week, Monday night at midnight, and the discount code is I want 35 and it's like a little I, W-A-N-T, 3-5, the actual numbers. All right, so let's talk about MobCoin, and dun-dun-dun, Jack was wrong! Yeah, I was really, really wrong. Um, 
really, and I was able to determine I was wrong really, really fast. Like as soon as I finished the article, I'm like, well, let's take my own advice and look up the white paper. So, um, I, I did a video yesterday on Bitcoin and what's next for Bitcoin. And somebody on my Odyssey channel commented and said, Hey, why did, uh, signal it create mobile coin? Instead of using, you know, pri uh, a, a privacy coin that already existed like Pirate Chain or Monero or something like that. And this led to a post I did in the cryptocurrency group we have in MeWe. And I said, you know, there's a lot of reasons for, for making your own currency. One is if you make your own currency on your own blockchain and you do all the development, you can build it so that it is designed to integrate with whatever other platforms you have. And if there's problems, since you own the code, you know the code, you own the coder probably. Like if you're a company, you probably paid someone who sits in the desk over there, right? And even if they're not the same person building your platform, they, those two guys can talk to each other. It, it leads to a lot of seamlessness. So as an example I gave was Library Odyssey, right? So LBC token was developed by the same people that developed the Library Odyssey platform. So that's why a big part of why anyway That when you sign up for an Odyssey account, you have a wallet, just works, you can send, you can receive, it's, it's attached to you, I mean, it just works. Because the same people built the same thing. So they're designed to, to work together. They made peanut butter and jelly on purpose. So there's that. But there's also, you know, the greed component. And the greed's not always bad, right? But if I create my own token, my own currency, whatever, as long as I can get it to circulate, And get it to exchange, you know, I can, I can just issue myself a bunch of it in the beginning. I can pre-mine it. I can reserve some. There's, I can do anything I want to make sure that my coffer is full. So if I'm going to issue a currency that's going to have, let's say, 100 million units, I can just have 20 million of them. And as long as it actually hits the market and takes off, I have money that funds my development, my ongoing everything. Right? Plus I'm making my founders wealthy. Maybe. So that's not bad. Why wouldn't you do it if you could? So that would be the reasons for it. It looks like they're the reasons that they did it. But my other guess, and I was wrong about this, because it uses the CryptoNote protocol, which is the same protocol from Monero, right? So that is a protocol that even the people that made it can't crack the code. And then they use a second layer of protection, Beyond the ring protocol of Monero. So it's actually a little more secure than Monero, and I would say a little less secure than Pirate Chain. So it's, it's good. It's damn good. But my thought was, well, maybe they did it so that they would hold a master key. A master key. So that they could say to the federal government, when the federal government says, this is only for child pornography that we sell to people through the, I'm sorry, this is only for, you know, child trafficking and drug chain and all like all that, right? It's illicit only. Well, they would be able to say to the federal government, gee, federal government, um, actually, we can tell you what's going on with any address anywhere in the blockchain if you really need that information. And when they're like, okay, well, tell us, then they could say, oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Go get your ass a warrant. Go get your ass a warrant and point to the places you think are a problem, and then we can issue you that. And then I said the bigger problem with that would be that then you could take the Coinbase precedent 
when the IRS went to Coinbase and said, give us all of the customer data, we want it all. And the federal judge said, nine, no, thou shalt not get all thy information, because Coinbase brought forth the lawyers and said, this is unconstitutional, this isn't right, no, you can't just get all our customer information. And so the judge said, no. So the IRS went back and said, okay, um, we have reason to believe that there are people evading taxes using uh, Coinbase to do so. And anybody that has this many or more transactions over this period of time totaling at least this much money, we want that. And the judge said, yep, you can have that. So that then we could have the potential for the government to be able to go after this new mob coin in some way, shape, or form. And... Uh, If they did that, they would probably get the information if it was doable. And that's why I thought it would... And why would you do that? If you're Signal and you're so big on privacy and everything. Because it's getting very hard to get currencies like Monero and Pirate Chain, etc. listed on mainstream exchanges. Like, you know, a Binance or something like that. They're delisting anything with any, even a hint of a problem to it. And certainly the privacy coins are hated by government because of what they do. So I thought, well, maybe they would do this so they could get mainstream listing. You know, we're not, and they're not. So it's, I think it's a good project. I also say in the article, do not buy it right now. Because it just really hit the market, and it got a bunch of press, you know, because signals behind it. Yay! And so it's gone skyrocketing in price. Go look at any altcoin, including ones that are very successful today. And look what happens when they first hit the market and become available to the public. Look what happens to the price, and look what happens you know, within a month thereafter. So even if this is a home run, hold on buying. Hoddle on buying, right? Uh, wait. And, and, and this may be a good one. I mean, it's got a lot. If it's going to be integrated seamlessly with the Signal app, woohoo! I think this is a great idea. And I'm not saying don't use it or anything. I'm saying like if you're, if you're buying it for long-term hold, wait. Wait, because, well, what I said in the article was, If you go look at, let's pick 10 altcoins that are successful today that were released, let's say, two-ish years ago. And if you go look at those charts and you go since inception and you look at what happens when they first come on the market and you look what happens next and you still want to buy it, well, a fool in his crypto are soon parted. That's all I'll say on that. All right, so next up, I want to talk about the vaccine. The vaccine that's not a vaccine. I said on Monday that the vaccine is an experimental gene technology, that that's what it is, there's no way around it, and, and, and the federal government changed the background verbiage so that it could be called a vaccine even though it's not a vaccine and never would have been a vaccine had they not made those changes so that it could be called a vaccine and fall under the Vaccine Protection Act of 1986. And I was told by someone whose credential is, my wife is a scientist who works on this stuff. You're wrong. We've had this technology available since the 1950s. We've been using it since the 1950s. Oh, dear friends. Dear friends, I, I, I have incontrovertible evidence that we may have known about this technology since the 1950s. We sure still haven't been using it, and no treatment had been approved using it until the COVID vaccine, which is not a vaccine. It's a gene therapy. Um, I'm reading to you from page 19 of Moderna's filing to the SEC. What? Yeah, see, they want to go public, so they have to do file a uh, uh, filing to the Security and Exchange Commission. 
And they have to talk about all the stuff they do and why it's wonderful and why they deserve approval to be able to sell their stock on the market. And before I read it to you, let's just talk about when you file paperwork with the Security and Exchange Com Commission, what, what you're doing. You're risking your ass if you don't tell the truth. You have, like, you have an army of, this is very expensive to do, you have an army of lawyers go over every word. And you make sure you're not lying because they will fry your ass. Okay? The SEC, if you officially lie in print where they can look at it and go, you lied, they fry your ass. You get a one-way ticket to Club Fed. So this is what it says on page 19 of the SEC filing about the mRNA um, technology being used to produce the Moderna vaccine. And I quote, and I do quote, I'm reading, I have enough intelligence to read English accurately. You can trust every word I'm about to say. But if you don't, there's a link and you can go read it for yourself. Currently, mRNA is considered a gene therapy product by the FDA. Unlike certain gene therapies that irreversibly alter cell DNA and could act as a source of side effects, mRNA-based medicines are designed not to irreversibly change cell DNA. Oh, there's some interesting things in that. First of all, is it a gene therapy? Yes. Yes, it says so right there in their own words. The people that made it said it's a gene therapy as, as regulated by the FDA, who changed the verbiage so they could call it a vaccine. This, this filing's not that old. Again, go read it for yourself. But it does not irreversibly change DNA. It doesn't say it doesn't change cellular DNA. It says it doesn't irreversibly change Cellular DNA. Do you know what you don't do? Do you know what you don't do when you're filing a legal document? You do not include words that are unnecessary for the document to be understood. Every word you use incurs additional responsibility and liability to the person making the filing. If it simply did not alter or change cell DNA at all, it would just say, are not... Do, designed not to change cell DNA. Do you understand that? It does cause alterations in your cellular DNA. It absolutely does. They're just not permanent. That's how it works. Now again, I want to be clear something about this technology. This technology may be as good as they say it is. However, I'll save, save part of this till my final segment today, which is, I don't trust liars. When, some, when a source has repeatedly lied to me about a thing, I stop trusting that source. I just, I just think that's common sense. Two, we don't know yet, and the risk to the average person from COVID itself is extremely low. And this whole 90%, 95% efficacy rate that they're giving you is not the effective rate of immunity. They don't even claim that either. You can go look that up for yourself. It's the, the likelihood that you will not end up in a hospital. That you will not have a serious case. It is a gene therapy that is designed to give you the ability to fight the illness, not to prevent getting it, nor to prevent spreading it. Hence, it's not a vaccine. I'm sorry, it just isn't. And no amount of fancy words or fancy titles will change that. And I'm going to say one more time. 
And you know what? I'm not the right person to do this. If we want to do hydroxychloroquine, my open challenge to debate, that still stands. When you start getting into technologies that are disadvantaged, I agree. I agree. I am not a doctor or a scientist. I have an open invitation, though. You go find me any qualified person to debate that this is, in fact, a vaccine, that it is, in fact, tested enough that the average person should trust it, etc. All that shit. And I will go find somebody with sufficient letters after their last name to make you happy, and we will have a live debate between those two parties. We will get an agreed-upon third-party moderator. We will agree to the subjects in advance. And I ask you only this, ladies and gentlemen. I ask you one thing about this. Given the, the gravity of this situation, given how much this has affected all of our lives, given the absolute insistence by the federal government, no shortcuts were taken, this is uh, older technology than you think it is, uh, it really is a vaccine, it does help prevent grandma from dying, uh, and if you don't get it, you can kill grandma, and all the other shit. Since that, that, like, none of these people who claim, well, I, don't, I legally can't come on and debate, none of these people have a problem going on all these news channels and publicly making all these claims. Why haven't you seen a single well-organized, professional debate with someone that can challenge them at their level. Why not? And how is it science without that? What is science? Science is a process. And science without rigorous academic debate is not a process anymore. It is an institution exerting authority over others. You must have rigorous academic debate in these situations. You want to convince me you're right? Fine. Get somebody, let me get somebody, and let's let them debate. And you won't do it, and no one's going to do it, and it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. What's happening is all the people on that side hope they're right, they're biting their nails and holding their breath, and they're hoping the other shoe doesn't drop down the road. This idea, and what I've heard also from people pushing back on this, well, uh, you know, generally when there's side effects from vaccine, you, you see them right away. And then they deny them, by the way. And then they deny them, by the way. I'm back to this, man. These significant reactions that everybody keeps calling minor, people laid up in bed for a day or two after the second injection. Has any one of these people, while this is happening, been put on a machine and had their brain scanned to make sure that they're not experiencing encephalitis, that that's not why they have a headache? I'm not saying they do. I'm saying, has anybody, have they, have they done that? Can you show me where that's been done? No, no, you can't. And you know why? I've looked. It doesn't happen. It's given that other vaccines have listed side effects, including encephalitis, swelling of the brain, and this is a new so-called vaccine technology that agitates At the, cell, at the DNA and RNA level inside the human cell. Don't you think we should check for that? Don't you think we should know? And if it doesn't happen, don't you think if we just like said, hey, you know what we'd like to do is we'd like to organize a study and these people are going to get the vaccine anyway. If you start having serious side effects and a headache, you could immediately show up here and we'll just do some scans and make sure. No, no, not worth doing. Don't worry about it. Okay. And you ask me why I say no to this vaccine. You ask me why I say no to this vaccine. When you're not doing the work that I think is necessary with something this new, and it is this new, and it is an experimental gene therapy because it says so in their own filing to the federal government, they also use the term somewhere else, platform. These are platforms. 
Like, like software platforms. Yeah. Okay. Fine. We're going to go on from there. Let's talk a little bit about something totally different. I want to talk to you today about wealth mindset versus poverty consciousness. And I want to tell you where I come from when I, when I talk about this subject. And it's a little bit hard to talk about at times. I talk about my past and my childhood sometimes. And I think people don't realize that it actually still is a struggle for me to talk about it today. Because it's not good. There's not a ton of good memories from this time of my life. Um, specifically, the second half of my childhood. So the first half of my childhood was in Florida. Um, I was insulated from a lot of what was going on. When we moved to Pennsylvania, I was older and I was less insulated. Plus, I also just knew more and I understood more about what was going on. And I, I won't dig into it. But we were also poor in many ways. And I don't think until we moved to Pennsylvania and I grew up a little bit more that I knew we were poor. And I think that's a good thing for kids to not know you're poor. But we were poor. And we weren't just poor. Where we lived, pretty much everybody was poor. Like, the one thing I'll say about the school that I went to, we did go, like, the rich kids and the poor kids got along. But do you know why? Because there were, like, ten rich kids in the whole damn high school. They were like the Yinglings and the Quandles, like were the, the, the two names of families, and there's a couple others that did okay. But almost everybody from the area was dirt poor. I mean, you, 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 you explain this. You can go buy a three-bedroom house in this place today for well under $100,000 today. My uncle bought the house across the street from the one I grew up in back in 1989 for $42,000. $42,000. Four-bedroom house on over an acre. I mean, it's just an impoverished area. And due to that, the entire place is rife with poverty mindset. And people blow money on things they shouldn't spend money on, and they withhold money from things they should spend money on. That's one of the, one of the hallmarks of being poor. And they use poor language. When I say poor, I don't mean bad. I mean impoverished language. Right? They use the language of poor people to reinstate their poorness and to stay poor. And I never understood this I, until I joined the army and I left. Then I came back and I had to deal with reentry into the civilian world. I didn't deal with it very well at first, so I took a walk on the Appalachian Trail for a few months. And then I moved to Texas, and I started building my life. And as I started building my life, I started determining that sleeping on the floor at a friend's apartment was not what I wanted for my entire future, and that I had to have more. And that started with just getting a better job and getting some skills and what have you. But as I did that, I started to teach myself about wealth. And I did it mostly, mostly at the time through reading and through audio books on cassettes. I discovered half-price books, and you could go buy these books for like super these audio cassettes because I was in the vehicle a lot with my work, and I would listen to these these books. And when when I would wear them out, I mean, I would literally listen to them five six times in a row. I would take them back to half-price books, and they'd give me half of the half price, so a quarter of the value, about half of what I paid back, and then I could afford another book. And I discovered libraries, and I used a lot of those uh, resources as well. And I started to really change the way I thought about money. And then, eventually, I got a really great job offer with a company called Microtest. Uh, they were eventually, very quickly after we moved, unfortunately purchased by a company called Fluke Networks. And I, I stayed on there for three years as their regional sales VP for the Northeast. And 
By that time, I'd kind of made it. I wasn't just changed in the way I thought. I had started to make real money. I was in you know an upper six-figure salary type situation and had been for a while. I was now buying. I bought my second house when we moved up there. So I and I you know new vehicle and all. I was I was past the poor boy from the coal region syndrome that I grew up with. And while I was buying this house, my wife and son were still down here in Texas. He was finishing up his year of school. We didn't want to move him, you know, toward the end of school. We wanted to let him finish. So before I actually got the keys and I couldn't go in the, ha- couldn't go in the house, stay in the house, the family that lived there was still there. I had this, like, week where I stayed with my father. And during this time, I took a trip, fishing trip, and... As I was driving down this little highway, little state highway, I saw a Dunkin' Donuts. And I remembered, as a teenager, how many times I was going hunting or fishing, and since they opened so early, you know, I'd stop there and have a coffee and a donut, maybe with a friend or a family member, and it was one of those good memories. And so I thought, you know, I could eat a donut. So I stopped and got just a plain old-fashioned donut, that's my favorite donut, and a cup of coffee. And I sat down, and instead of getting it to go, I thought, I'm just going to sit in this place, because, you know, kind of remember the place. And this is the middle of the week, and it's not super early, by the way. You know, it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. So there's a lot of people there for 10 o'clock in the morning in the middle of the week. You would think they had jobs. But it wasn't just old people. There were people of, like, all age brackets and all. I mean, this is a small town. Dunkin' Donuts is a hub of activity. And there was a word that I must have heard a hundred times in about ten minutes, and I had to finally get out of there. I felt like putting my fingers in my ears. Cheaper. It's cheaper there. Oh, they're cheaper over here. They're like Everything was where's the cheapest freaking thing you can get your hands on. What's the cheapest? What's the cheapest? What's the cheapest? And all oh, those guys are proud of their price. They rip you off. right? They rip you Because they charge more for something that's probably better, they're ripping you off. This mindset. And this is when I came up with this long ago. So we're going like 2001 here, right? That's when I came up with one of my laws of life. Always be frugal. Never be cheap. Always be frugal. Never be cheap. And I realized that this mindset was costing these people the little bit of money they had. By always doing the cheapest solution possible... They were always having to replace the solution. That's why I've, I'm not going to go into it today, but that's why I've used the garden hose as, a, as an example of this so many times. You buy a cheap garden hose, you're throwing it away in two years or less, and it's miserable experience while you have it. You spend twice as much, you get a garden hose the last 10 years, and it's a good experience while you have it, and you end up financially ahead. And then still knowing some people from when I was a kid and all, I made a huge mistake, and I tried to explain this to them. I felt like I was trying to explain calculus to an autistic orangutan. They just could not understand it. And I could not understand at the time why they could not understand what I was talking about. And then I kind of sat back and went, you're not better than these people. You just separated yourself from what's affecting them. You're not smarter than these people. They just haven't had the life experience you've had of getting away from this place and getting away from this mindset. They haven't immersed themselves in wealthy thinking. They don't believe that they will ever be wealthy, they don't believe that they have the right to wealth, and they've actually convinced themselves that wealth is bad. They want it, 
But it must be that the people, since they don't have it, and since no one they really know has it, the people that have it are the ones that, quote-unquote, rip you off. And so they have then determined in their mind, subconsciously possibly, they may not even be able to articulate this, that all the people who are wealthy were lucky or they stole it from somebody, they're a shyster, they're a scammer, they, you know, it's a woman that's successful, she slept her way to the top, whatever. Like, And I, when I started listening for that, I was like, oh my God, you're right. And this is the majority of America's, America's folk, Americans, folks. And it's not limited to small towns. It's just really obvious in a small town. Because there's a, there's a small enough number of people that you hear pretty much what everybody's saying. And that most of the people in these places have never experienced wealth or even the illusion of wealth. And I realized, like, dude, you've experienced this yourself. I remember when I bought my first brand new, well, my, it was my second brand new truck. But it was the first really nice one. Like, we were looking for a new vehicle, and we went in, and there was this beautiful red Dodge on the, you know, the one they put in the showroom, so that when you walk in, it's the first thing you see. And I bought it right off the floor. They had to take it out of the building for me. And as we're doing it, I was thinking, you, you're not the guy that, like, there was a part of me, like, you don't, you can't do this. You can't just go into a place, show a couple pay stubs, sign a thing, throw a guy a check for a grand, and, and drive away in a brand new truck. You're, you're a kid whose first car was 300 bucks. You made the money by, by salvaging copper out of a mine shack. And then I went, oh yeah, I made the money for my first car by salvaging copper out of electric motors in a mining shack in the middle of a mountain that had been abandoned since the 1930s. Because I didn't believe that anything would prevent me from getting what I wanted. And I knew the first step in being able to have a job was to have a car. And so I needed a job to get a car, and I needed a, you know, a car to get a job. I had to find a way. And I did. And I, then I wondered something. Can anybody develop the mindset of wealth? Or do you have to have a little bit of that in you? So I took a trip again. I said to myself, I wonder, has anyone else gone to that shack and gotten that copper? Because when I got that first car, my friends, my high school friends said to me, Wow, it's, you're so lucky you get a car. And I said, but there's this old shack. And there's parts of it you really can't ride up because they're too steep. But I basically pushed my bicycle up the hill where I was too steep to ride with a backpack and a thing of tin snips and a pair of pliers every day for a few weeks it took. But then I saved up enough money to buy the car. And for my dad to let me buy the car, I had to be able to pay six months of insurance and have another $200 for repairs and another at least $100 for gas. I had to have that much money plus the car price. And I, I was able to get all of that by doing this for a few weeks. And I didn't need anybody's approval. And I'll show you where it is. And, I, and some of them even feigned half-ass interest And, you know, we'd go shooting with 22s or something, and I'd show them where it was. So I thought, surely, surely somebody, somebody went up there and did what I did. Because it was time-consuming, but it wasn't hard, and it wasn't like it was stealing. Because, I mean, this stuff literally had been abandoned in the 30s. 
And when I went to the place, the only thing that had changed is the trees growing through the roof had gotten bigger and there was more, you know, brambles and shit around it. I had to fight my way to get inside this busted-ass old shack. And laying on one side of the shack was a small pile of motor housings. And on the other side of the shack was a pile of motors that had not been stripped. And you forget things over a decade or more. But when I looked at the pile, I could literally see that the last one I had thrown and the way it landed, it, at least in my memory, it was like a photograph. That no one had touched it since 1987. And this is 2001. In a place where people are poor. Now, the place I grew up in You leave copper unattended, it gets stolen. There were people stealing aluminum fixtures from playground equipment. But of course, that was theft, so they felt like they were getting away with something, but also it required very little effort. You know, a crescent wrench in a couple minutes and you could get away with it. But this required effort. This required work. This required time. And no one was willing to do it. And I just wonder, will any of them have any of them? Did any of these people I know go on a journey similar to mine? Because that's not the only litmus test. But it is a litmus test. If you want wealth in your life, the first step is to realize that you're worthy of it. And that people that have it didn't necessarily get it by screwing people over or stealing or ripping somebody off. And I think the number one reason people do not become wealthy and the number one reason people are okay with things like, well, this taxes for the rich is because they have not done that and they don't think that they'll ever be wealthy. And I really mean it. I spoke like this before I had money and I thought like this before I had money. And it took getting the mindset change ahead of the change in income. And the change in money and having wealth. It took that mental shift. And I remember when I was struggling coming up and I was dealing with these issues and I didn't know that I was dealing with these issues. And I would talk to people because I, I had learned the value of mentorship and I had, you know, started to get better jobs and I had people that I worked with who were doing better than me and I would talk to them about wealth. You know, and I'm talking people that were like part owners in companies that I worked for and stuff like that. And they would say things I'm like, and I would say that same stupid thing people say to me now. That's why I try to understand it, you know, because I don't forget. Uh, that's easy for you to say. And I remember very specifically a gentleman named David Bowles one time said to me, when it becomes easy for you to say it too, then it will be easy for you to do it. It doesn't mean it'll be a clear path of doing it. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges. There won't be, it doesn't mean there won't be times that you won't want to quit. But when I say it's easy, what I mean is you'll see the path and you'll know to walk it. And then you'll do it. But until you change the way you think, and you change the way you think by changing what you say, it will never happen. And it was very frustrating to look at a guy, you know, He was driving like, you know, a $40,000 pickup truck. And this is, you know, 25 years ago. 
and hear him say that shit because it's like that's easy for you to say and there you go you catch yourself doing it again folks if you want wealth you have to you have to not only have put on the mindset of wealth you have to shed the poverty consciousness the bad news is i would say more than 90% of our society has poverty consciousness because it's in benefit to the people in power who want you in the words of michael saylor to work exponentially harder in order to earn a currency that is exponentially weaker it's in their benefit for you to have a poverty consciousness because that makes class warfare easy that makes controlling you easy and that makes you someone who always feels you'll never have enough so any semblance of will give you a little bit more is enough to control you it's enough to control you if i offer you right the ability to take a crap alone by yourself you're you're going to say i i don't piss off I don't need you for that, right? What if you're in prison? How valuable does it become for you to be able to take a crap alone? Do you understand that? And that is the that is the same psychology of poverty consciousness. If you can make people, even people that have plenty of money, convinced that they're poor people, then you can easily execute a class warfare strategy against the supposed rich where you screw those very people more, but they let you do it because, well, that carrot of having a little bit more free health care, whatever it is, that will never be free and will always cost you more and will always be of poorer quality is still enough to get you behind it because you don't believe you'll ever have more. And here's the thing about it. If you don't believe you ever will have more, you won't. You won't. And even if you do by some accident, people that think, well, one day I might win the lottery, those people are always going to be poor unless they actually win the lottery. In which case, they'll be poor within three to five years after winning the lottery. In fact, their life will probably be worse. Um, most people who don't fix this problem, who end up finding money in any way, shape, or form, end up broke and or dead. Perfect example would be Rodney King. Remember Rodney King? Why can't we all just get along? The guy that was beaten by the police that, that, that fed and started the LA riots. Go read what, I'm not going to go into it, but go read what happened to Rodney King after he got his big monetary settlement. Go read what happened to him. And it's not even surprising. Next up, let's talk a little bit about supplements. Just real, real quick segment here. It's kind of a transitional segment. So I talked about my sub, supplement regimen on Monday and I said that I take my supplements Three times a day in three dose, three different sets of dosages. And specifically, among those, I take my vitamin D K2 in three equal doses three times a day. And that had a lot of people asking me, is that necessary? Can't you just take it all at once? And, and my answer to it is it depends. I take a lot of supplements. It's a lot of pills to put in your stomach at one time. Because I, I didn't actually give everything. I take, like, for instance, I take, you know, magnesium, two pretty big magnesium tablets each day dose as well. So it starts to add up. And that's a lot in the stomach at once. I eat a very light early meal. I call it breakfast, but it's far later than most people eat breakfast. And then I, I take my supplements right after that. If I take them on an empty stomach, it makes you miserable. Or your stomach's churning, etc. Right? That's what I found works for me. So I just don't want to take them all at once. I also think it does help when you're taking large doses of something to kind of spread it out throughout the day so your body can use it better. But no, it's not necessary. The other thing I wanted to cover real quick is people asked about the Quisertin dosage. 
and that I used to talk about green tea extract and selenium. So quercetin first. Quercetin is a great antiviral. It does. It's, it's a wonderful substance. It comes from plants. And it also acts as an ionophore for zinc, meaning it helps get zinc in the cells. I won't go into that today. I've talked about it a lot, but it's important. Without, without an ionophore, zinc is in the blood but not inside the cell. And it needs to be in the cell to do things for antiviral properties, anti-cancer properties, and other things. So that's why I take both. When I first came out with what I recommend to help prevent or reduce the effects of COVID, if you should still get it anyway, I was saying to take 500 milligrams of quercetin twice a day, so a 1,000 total, with zinc in the morning with it, right? So take it in the morning and then take it again at the end of the day. And people said, well, now you're recommending 250 milligrams. What's the difference? And the difference is you have no quercetin in your regime and you start taking it. It takes quite a while for it to build up in your system to do its job. Think of it like a loading dose. And the maximum safe dose for long-term uses, which the, uh, the medical community defines as 12 weeks, you know, 12 weeks would be a long-term use, is 1,000 milligrams. My chiropractor had also already had me on that level anyway for other reasons. So it was just what I was taking. And like I said, I don't make recommendations. I just tell you what I'm doing. After doing it for a while and you've built up the, the levels of it and the effects of it, you can take less, which simply costs less money. So going to 250 twice a day instead of 500 twice a day made sense. Additionally, some people said, but they're 500 milligrams a capsule. The brand I recommend is 250. If you had 500 and you took it once a day, would that be good enough? I think it would. It's up to you to do your own research, but that's why. As to selenium. I still think selenium is an incredibly important mineral, and I think that most people are probably, if they're not supplementing, are probably deficient in it. I'm not like I'm sure most people are deficient in vitamin D, but probably selenium. However, any good multivitamin has enough, you know, and good means absorbable as well has enough selenium, and if you're taking a multi, it's covered. So I don't feel the need to constantly reiterate that. As to green tea in extract, green tea extract has a substance in it called ethyl something with an E, glutamate, something like that, uh, EG for short, uh, that also is an ionophore for zinc. When I first discovered the correlation between quercetin and zinc and the ionophore properties of quercetin, the research I found all used quercetin plus green tea extract. And I had not yet verified that one would work by itself versus the other. Turns out quercetin is plenty good enough for this purpose. So I dropped the green tea extract because it's another expense. It's another pill. Plus it has caffeine in it. And since I'm a coffee drinker, it was adding to my caffeine load and making me a little jittery. So it's up to you. It certainly wouldn't hurt anything as long as you tolerate it well. All right. Next up, I was asked a pretty detailed uh, version of a question about... Vin Armani's phrase he's coined called the dim age. And this was really, this is from Nick uh, in Mongolia. And it, Nick's a thinker. And when you listen to the totality of this question, you, you could tell this is from a thinker, right? He says, hi, Jack, do you share the assertion shared by Vin Armani, Pinquinonis, and others that we are now entering a time, the dim age, as they've been calling it? I just want to say, like, 
Pete's talking about it. Some other people are talking about it. But it's Vin's term. Like, he coined that term. He gets 100% credit for it. Just want to say that. Um, where emotion-based and belief-based thinking will be much more dominant than it already was. And if so, should that change how we approach persuading and convincing others of our positions or messages? Details. The question was inspired by both episodes 2850, quote of the day, and your stated reservations about the library saying, help us save crypto, public response to the Fed's lawsuit. I'm in the same boat, finding the library statement a bit hyperbolic and annoying. And I'd like to see less of it. Just because he doesn't go deeper into that. Yeah, library has a problem. I think the feds are wrong, and I hope library wins, and I'll do all I can to support them. But if they lose, it's not the end of crypto, right? So that's the context. Uh, yet it hasn't escaped me that the use of facts and logic don't usually work that well in terms of persuasion, especially when compared to appeals to emotion, belief, and magical thinking. Jokes about autistic libertarians aside, facts and logic do only seem to resonate with the well a relative minority. So why are we relying on them so much in trying to persuade others? It seems like fighting with one hand behind our back. Perhaps one's better approach is not so much abandoning logic and facts when convincing others, but rather finding the right way to integrate or wrap them with powerful ideas, statements, or even art in a way that has more impact on the majority. Does it seem to be a formula for success for the most successful viral memes out there? I'm betting that in the courtroom, the library team will hit some, if not all, the logical points you touched on, but the court of public opinion in trying to encourage public pushback against Fed bullies may be leading off the way they did makes a certain kind of sense, just a thought. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Nick in Mongolia. So, the dim age is a perfect phrase to describe what you're observing happening in the world today. And that's why I think Vin hit a home run using it. I don't think it's actually anything new. I really don't. I don't think that leading people around like a bull with a ring in their nose based on emotion versus logic, fact, and reason is anything new. And I think that like you want to take it back to a, a, a former quote of the day, In and around 400 B.C., Polybus said, The mob is easily led and may be moved by the smallest force so that its agitations have a wonderful resemblance to those of the sea. That's a great description of something you would call a dim age. That emotion and magical thinking create a greater reaction in people than logic and reason. Now, we like to believe That is, we came out of, of the Dark Ages and went through the Age of Enlightenment and we, uh, we, we got into the world of science and science began to supplant religion that this changed. It did not. It did not. Now, there's no doubt that there's been times in history where people have been more rational and thought more clearly and required more evidence to come to a conclusion than they do today. Right, But this predisposition of people to be led through emotion, to be led through magical thinking, to basically, once you condition the mind a certain way, to then be totally receptive to anything that reinforces it and totally resistant to anything that challenges it, that's just a human thing. And the people that run the world are masters of manipulation. They're absolute masters of manipulation, and they know this, and they've known this forever. And I, I honestly would tell you, without this 
fundamental reality of human behavior not only existing but being well understood by the sociopaths and the psychopaths that run society, I don't know that the state could have become what it's become. There's always been talismans, right? There's always been some sort of talisman that people have believed in, whether it was a physical thing that they actually believed. Like there were amulets that people wore during the plague that they believed would protect them from the plague, even though there was no evidence and they didn't work. Kind of like an experimental gene therapy that doesn't actually prevent infection of the virus on any meaningful level. But might actually, again, I'll come back to it, might actually help you deal with it better, maybe. I don't know. I don't think we actually know that yet. I think that we've made uh, assertions that that's the case, but we are talking about something that most people handle well to begin with. So it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to say what does work. It's not, you know, if it was bubonic plague and we went from like a almost 100% fatality rate to like a 90% survival rate, even if you didn't like it, you'd say, hey, this probably freaking works. That's not what we're dealing with here. But we still have the same talisman effect. I just think the age that we're living in today has made this more apparent. It hasn't made it more true. It's made it more apparent. And I think it's a confluence of things. Number one, COVID killing the dying. Well, I think one of the things that was dying was logical thought and rational debate in society. That was dying, and COVID accelerated it. So COVID, just like COVID's killing commercial real estate, Uh, and killing business travel, which were both waning as it was due to pro you know products like Zoom and the, the realization that we can actually do business without moving people and things to places they don't need to go to. Like that just accelerated. Uh, the public education system was losing support like crazy, and now it's losing even more. There's a, a, a damn right exodus out of it now. COVID's killing the dying. So COVID accelerated this, this complete burn down of people being willing to break from their mindset and actually consider an opposing view, to have a rational debate and to just scream and shout down dissenting opinions, right? That, that all got accelerated. But the other thing that happened is I think that you always observed it if you're a rational, clear-thinking person, but now the other side of the Internet and all this technology that's accelerated this dim, dim-wit thinking, right, has also made it easier for a person who's willing to consider alternative views and to get more information to do so. Think if this had happened in 1980, right? Let's say it's just 1980, you're the age you are now, and this disease hit. Where would you, where would you get compelling information from that was counter to the mainstream narrative? A book? That takes, you know, back then there was no print on demand or anything, right? So we get a book that took a year to publish. By then you've got a year of conditioning that's already happened. If you turn the TV on, you had NBC, CBS, ABC, and PBS. So you were going to get one story, and that's what you got. If you remember the 1980s, that's what you got. You got a, everybody had the same story. They might have a different spin, but it was the same story. Right, and you, so you thought it was factual because everybody matched up. Where were you going to get information from? You know, some newsletter letter by some guy that lived in a van down by the river or something like that. Like you just didn't have access to counter information. Maybe you would be lucky, and maybe your doctor would be a little more switched on, and maybe he would be one of the doctors that today is on the internet telling you the truth. But if you didn't happen to have that doctor 
your doctor said, oh, boy, yeah, this is going to kill you really dead, Bill. You better get the vaccine that's a vaccine. You wouldn't have any counter-information. It's not just COVID, right? It's any issue, right? If the government said something was good, then everybody was going to tell you it was good. And the people that didn't were always the people that were just, a, you know, were considered a little off. Where today you can actually, like when I when I make a claim, for instance, when I make a claim that Moderna called the experimental gene therapy um, that they are now saying is a vaccine experimental gene therapy in their own filing to the SEC, in literal seconds. You can do a search or you can click a link and you can go look and say this is actually on the archive of the Securities and Exchange Commission site. This is not a fabrication. This is a real filing. There's a filing number. You can look it up. You can verify it. And you can say, some bitch. Maybe I don't agree with his conclusions, but when he says this is an experimental gene therapy and he says they said so, and when he says that the FDA said so, here it is. Here it is. So now you can verify it. The more you can verify, the more you can reassure yourself, the dumber people who refuse to do so look to you. The dimmer the age becomes in your observation. And I think it's a confluence of those things. So it's not that I disagree with Vin's terminology. I just don't know that it's as new, and I don't think he's saying it is. I don't think it's as new as many people that hear it think that it is. Ages are pretty long things, guys. Ages are pretty long things. I think it's more, I think this is actually a lot like, and this would be a great movie to watch with your kids as long as they're old enough for all the subject matter. They Live. Remember They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper in it, right? And what I mean is, in They Live, there were these glasses, these sunglasses. If you've never seen this, this is a movie from 86 or 87. God, it's so spot on for today. But aliens have taken over the planet. And all of our advertising and all of our messaging is like, you know, consume, obey, etc., right? And like you see this sign with this beautiful woman on it, right? But when you put the sunglasses on, what, what it really says underneath is consume, obey, things like that. And I think in a lot of ways, the Internet and the information age we live in has become the glasses that let you see what's really happening. But I think most people... If those glasses were real like they were in the movie, and you told them what was really happening, and you said, here, put these on, would not. Or if they did, they would say what? Oh, this is a trick. This is like those x-ray glasses they used to sell with Bazooka Joe bubblegum. It's a gimmick. It's not real. And the, even when you got them to the point where it's undeniable that it was real, they would prefer not to know. They would prefer to just go along the way things are, and they don't want things messed up. And I think that, to me, and I know that Vin will probably disagree with me, but that, to me, sums up what the dim age really is. And it is worse, but I don't know if it's so much that it's worse. Like, it definitely is worse, but what we really see today, is it 100 times worse than it was 20 years ago? Or is it 10 times worse, but we can see it 100 times better? And I, I think it's more more like that. As to the core of the question from Nick, does that mean we should use emotion, that we should use magic in our arguments? I don't know. I don't know. It may be more effective. The problem is when you build your case 
in a place where you're already the opposition on magic and on emotion, it's very easy for your case to be taken apart. And people will listen to logic and reason and facts, right, when it makes the, th the case for the thing they already believe in. So the same person that will deny this is an experimental gene therapy, when you put the paperwork in front of them that says it's an experimental gene therapy, right, the same person that will do that, if it said what they wanted it to say, would say that's conclusive proof, I believe it. And since you built your case on emotion, think of the statue in the Bible. Right, the Nebuchadnezzar statue in the dream, where the, the head was of gold, I think the body was stone and the feet were of clay, and then when the clay broke, the statue fell, heralding the fall of his empire, right? And then King Cyrus came and all that, right? Um, think of an argument based on emotion that way. You're building a really good-looking statue with clay or sand feet. And a single rock, no matter how strong the statue is, brings the whole thing down. And the person you think will never use logic, emotion, reason will when it suits them. When it suits them. And so, again, I don't think it's new. I think it's just, it's more chronic and the visibility is so much higher. So I don't think that means we don't use logic, we don't use emotion. But when you use emotion or conjuring that's so easily disproven, then I think you have a problem. And as much as I love Jeremy Kaufman, as much as I love library, as much as I support them, as much as I'll continue to support them, we're trying to save crypto because if we lose, everybody loses. Man, you talk about the, the first cursory observation of the facts destroying that argument, I think it's a mistake. And I really wish they would come at this a different way. I really do. Um, I think you'd make a very strong argument that if we win, we pave the way for crypto to become what it ultimately can become. That is an argument that invokes that emotion, but I think it's also based on fact and reason. And that's kind of where I delineate between the two. Great question, Nick. Thank you. It made a great segment. So I also got another question. Uh, this one came from a gentleman named Tim. And Tim says, uh, uh, love the show. Quick question. If money were no object, would you get a Caribbean passport as a Plan B passport? Longer story, I've been considering getting a second passport. I'm looking to St. Lucia or Antigua though they're through their donation program it costs 100 to 200,000. dollars cost is doable, but I'd rather have the money than a useless piece of paper. I currently live in a free red state and I don't want to leave the country. However, historically people who did best escaping Venezuela had second passports. Curious to your thoughts about this for a round table show. Thanks, Tim. Um, the question is I don't know. I don't know if I would do it if money were no object. I know a lot of people right now are doing it. Um, due to preferential uh, tax uh, opportunity as it relates to cryptocurrency and specifically being able to do some things in cryptocurrency that American citizens are prohibited from doing. This is also a reason a lot of people have done this historically for investment purposes. That The United States government, I can sum this up in the same way that we talked about social media yesterday when we talked to uh, uh, Nathan from DBuzz, and he said, you know, the thing that big tech is doing when they're censoring They don't actually think they're doing the wrong thing. They think you're too stupid 
to make the right decision if you're given all the information. The government feels that way about you too, not just with information, but with an opportunity. That you're too stupid to understand the risks associated with certain investments. You see, you need protection. Like, how would they justify all the regulations they have for companies and corporations around investing if you weren't too stupid to need it? Therefore, something that exists outside of it must be bad and dangerous unless you're already rich You're not allowed to touch it. Or opening certain bank accounts in other countries or certain services in other countries. You cannot partake in unless you're, you know, either have a different citizenship or you're wealthy enough to either buy that citizenship or to operate in, in a loophole that your lobbyists made so that you could. So it's, it, it's, it, there's a lot of buzz around it right now because a lot of folks, who were very early adopters of cryptocurrency, who went a lot more all-in than I did, and I wish I had done... Only only thing I re regret about my advice on cryptocurrency going back to 2014 is I didn't take more of it myself. I didn't do more of it myself. Um, so, you know, there's people that went from work-a-day jobs to being worth 20, 30, 40 million dollars. And they have a tremendous amount of wealth in cryptocurrency, and they don't like what they're seeing from the U.S. government. So converting 200 grand of it when you got that kind of money and buying a, a passport to St. Kitts, I think is another place that it's done, or Nevis or somewhere like that, like to them, well, shit. And some of those countries, you can do it with a donation or what have you, or an investment you never get back, but some of them... You can actually buy a property there, a piece of real estate, and just by capitalizing into the real estate, you can gain this. There's also some real tax advantages of living in certain countries other than the United States. Costa Rica is another place that has a program like this where you can get Costa Rican citizenship, and then you can move your business operations to Costa Rica. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's something like there's no income tax on income up to a half a million dollars. Now, there's a high sales tax, and there's other taxes, but they don't really tax your income very highly there. And so I look at that, and if I were to do that, I could put $50,000 a year back in my pocket just by doing business as a Costa Rican citizen versus a U.S. citizen and moving my base of operations to Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is also one of those places where I can capitalize a certain amount of money, and they don't give it to them. I can put it in a bank account in my name in Costa Rica, and then I can borrow against it to buy property, and eventually I get the money back. Like, I've actually kicked that around. But if you're doing it for asset protection, and let's say that you're worth a half a million dollars, are you going to spend $200,000 you're never going to see again, end up with $300,000 to protect the original $500,000? And I don't know. It depends. Do you get other things out of it? I really don't have an exact total answer to this. I can tell you that I've looked at it, and I'm not at a point where money is no object, but I am at a point where money is not a preventative factor, and I haven't done it. I haven't done it. And whenever I look at it, the cost is so high that I come away from it going, can I do more for my own liberty and freedom with that money 
than I can do with a second passport? And up till now, the answer has been yes. Now, I do think there is a place for a country to be a little smarter about this. Because if you get into the neighborhood of like 25, 50,000 bucks, you start to get into a point where I think you would attract a lot of interest, a, a ton of interest. And you get into a much more affordable place for people. And I'm not just saying affordable as in I can afford it, but I'm willing to part with the money. Because this is what a lot of times people don't understand about these things. So let's say I decide I'm going to do this thing in, uh, in, in Antigua or whatever. Let's say it's going to cost me 200 grand. Right? And I'm not sure that that's what it would cost me. But let's say it did. It cost me 200 grand in Antigua. Do you know what it means for my wife? Nothing. Maybe she can travel with me. Maybe I can spot, but she doesn't have, it's not like it's for a couple. Or like you're, if you get citizenship, your, your spouse automatically does. So if it's a couple and you're trying to do it for both of you, and you both want to be able to travel under, you know, passports from that nation, freely go into that nation, uh, become a global nomad and not pay taxes because you're traveling as a citizen of Antigua versus the United States, et cetera. Well, now it's not 200 grand, it's four. So I, it, it, you know, it starts to really get into a point. And when I looked into in Costa Rica, like it, it was either do both, or my wife would probably never actually be a citizen, though she would probably be able to stay there with me, uh, 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 you know, unlimited. But it really limited some of the things she could have done with, with that I could do that she maybe couldn't. And so it at that point it started to become denig. It's like I would rather have the money. And I think that's how we make any purchase decision. I don't know that we need to make this one any differently. If I actually thought we were headed for Nazi Germany, and some people do, uh, I probably would. I probably would, because then I, at least I have some place I can go outside the boundary of this country. I'm also of this mindset. There are two ways to handle that eventuality. One is get out, and I think for a lot of people that's their best answer. There's another group of people, though, in these situations. And they're the people that in occupied Europe, where the Nazis took over places in places like Holland, where my father-in-law was part of the underground resistance, that the Allies did things like they made these little bitty one-shot guns. They fired a .45, and they airdropped them and just dropped them all over the place. And what you did is you found one, you picked it up, it came a one-bullet. And it was a pretty cheapo, like a zip gun, basically. You put a .45 shell in it, pull a plunger back, and you walked up behind a Nazi. You shot him in the head. And you only needed one bullet because then you took his gun. And you took his uniform. And you took all the information that he had and you fed it back. No matter the military might we exerted, we probably would not have defeated the Nazis in Europe without those people. I don't ever want to be one of them. But I am the person that if you push me to the point where I have to make the decision, at least while I am still young enough, I am that person. There is a point where I will say, this has gone too far and it will not go any further. And I think that a lot of people have these romantic ideas that like there's like 50% of the countries like that, and they're not. I think a lot of people think it's 3%. I don't know that it is. I don't know that it is. There's so many people that in my head were the people that would be at my side at that moment 
that when I've had deep, long duration conversations with them, I go, no, they wouldn't. But there, there has to be some remnant that will stand. And so it is a cost analysis, but there's also that. If I'm, if I am to do it, it's for asset protection. It's for access to things that I can't access as an American citizen. It's amazing how many things you can't do as an American citizen. You can do, you could be a citizen of Ethiopia and you can do them. You can't do them as an American citizen. It is not to get away from that dystopia. Because if that dystopia comes, that's when we've tried the soapbox, the ballot box, and we're down to the frickin' ammo box. Please use them in that order, but when we get to there, then that's what we're using. And I hope I never live to see it. And my instinct is I won't. But if I do, I've already made my choice. I've already made my choice. All right. Now, the last thing I want to ask you today, those of you that are still angry with me over the vaccine issue, The same question I would have asked my brother-in-law had we not been in a family environment where other people, like, I know I can have that conversation with him. We can totally disagree, and then we can have a beer and forget about it, right? Other people get emotional, you can't do that. But the question I really wanted to ask was, why do you trust known liars? He's a cop, by the way. He's, he's my one relative, one of my two relatives that are police officers. And I would have asked him, you know, if we were here on my back porch alone, when you are interviewing a suspect and you know that you've been lied to, how much do you trust that suspect going forward? And he would have said none. Oh, okay. <laughs> When you have somebody making a complaint against somebody else and you start interviewing and you determine that they're lying in their complaint about one thing, do you doubt the entire complaint? Well, absolutely. Of course you do, right? And when you have a person who's routinely lied to you or a source that has routinely provided you with fallacious information, and you know that, how much do you trust the other information coming from them? Well, if you're smart, not at all, right? So why is it that so many of you know the government lied about how dangerous COVID was, has inflated the death rates, has called flu COVID because they had to have, because where'd the flu go without it, has made like people who would have died anyway should be in that death statistic, would never been in a death statistic for any other illness they would have died of, i.e., people that are 80, mid-80s and up living in elder care facilities have an average life expectancy in those facilities of about four months. The outside edge of the median is two years, meaning if you've already been in there a year and a half, six months is really at the edge of reality. Most people, once they go into nursing homes, etc., when you, when, you, when you figure everything out and you go to the median, meaning half or more don't make it, it's four months. So when these people traditionally have gotten something like the flu or whatever and died, we just said they died of old age. But now it's COVID. They, so you know they've done this. You know the lockdowns don't work even though they say they do because we have conclusive proof because the states that didn't do it did just as well relatively as the states that did. So you know they're lying. You know the masks don't work because their own study showed that they didn't work, even though they said the study showed they did work because apparently 0.7% is enough to say something works. 
You know that no drug would be approved as bad as the FDA is. No, no drug would be approved by the FDA because it improved outcomes by 0.7%. I've asked multiple doctors, like, would you even prescribe a medication where they stated the medication improved an outcome in a study by 0.7%? And to a T, every single one of them said no, because that means it doesn't do shit. It's inside the margin. So you know they lied about that. You turn your TV on every single day and you see them lie. And then they say, oh, but the vaccine is 90% effective. And it's not a gene therapy. It really is a vaccine. And you believe them. Liars occasionally tell the truth. But shouldn't you first doubt? Shouldn't you first doubt and then confirm? Rather than first believe and then write off any opposing view? Why do you trust known liars? I really want to know this. I really want to know this. I, I understand the person that believes all the bullshit. That believes it all, believing one more spoonful of bullshit. Like, they've been spoon-fed an entire bowl of bullshit soup, and I've watched them consume it. So when they get that, they tilt the bowl to the side, and they get that last spoonful of bullshit, and shove it down their throat, and that person eats it, I'm not surprised. What I'm surprised by is the person who sits there and they try to get, like, they're like, you know, like, like the resistant toddler. The, the media comes with a spoonful of bullshit and they smack it away. And they come with another spoonful of bullshit and they smack it away. And they smack away all the bullshit. And they get down to the last bit with the big turd in it and gulp. Down it goes. Is it the dim age that we talked about today? Is that what it is? Is it the magic talisman of calling it a vaccine? Would you trust it? Would you trust it as you do, 100%, the way you do? Just shut up and line up. Would you trust it if the media and Anthony Frodzi and all the people called it what it was? If they said, we have developed a new experimental genetic therapy that, re that improves outcomes from COVID, would you, would you trust it? If they just used the real words, the actual description that the company that makes it used in their filing to the government, if they just changed the words, would you feel differently? And, I, and I, I, those of you who do trust it, I want you for a moment to take your trust, don't even put it on the shelf, put it in your pocket, you can put it in your front pocket, it's right there, it's not gone. I want you to honestly answer the question. If CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Anthony Frazzi, all of them, if they all came out and said from the beginning, we have a new experimental gene therapy that manipulates your mRNA to produce antibodies, and it reduces the impact of COVID-19 on people, and you're less likely to end up in the hospital or having a bad outcome if you take this. And if they were telling the absolute truth when they said that, and they also included... This therapy has never been approved in the past, and right now it's not approved. It's under emergency use authorization, use authorization, but you should still get it because we believe that it works as advertised. Would you feel differently? If you answered yes, that's the damage. It's the same thing. I just changed the word. And the word becomes the talisman. Because most people trust the word vaccine we'll just use that word it looks like a vaccine I mean it comes in a needle we inject it into the body 
It causes an immunoresponse. Isn't that a vaccine? Well, up until they changed the way that they regulated the term, no, it's not. But you trust. And this is all I'm saying. Because I've never said it doesn't work. I've never said I guarantee you there will be bad side effects. What I said is, I don't know that it works. The risks associated with not knowing, to me, exceed the value of the supposed protection. And since they say, I can still get it and I can still spread it, trying to guilt me into doing something that has a risk associated with it, under the guise that I might hurt someone somewhere else, doesn't work anymore. And I am in the wait-and-see crowd. And what do you get called for that? A quack. Dim age. We'll just throw an emotional response at this. Or, oh, you just don't understand. See, my wife is a scientist. This is a way more eloquent solution. It is a vaccine. What do you mean? Well, I don't know. The company she probably works for, or the company that the company she works for works for, says it's not a vaccine. They say it's an experimental genetic therapy. They say it doesn't permanently alter cellular DNA. It doesn't irreversibly alter cellular DNA. This is their own words. It's amazing you believe them when they tell you what the TV says. You don't believe their own words when they tell you that's a lie. You trust people you shouldn't trust, that you know you shouldn't trust. It's a weird place. Again, maybe it's great. It might be. My latest information I've been getting on it is they now think they're going to be able to use this same technology to create a vaccine for HIV. By the way, I won't be getting that either. <laughs> But maybe it'll work. I've said, I believe this is the technology that will lead to the greatest advances in the treatment of certain cancers that we have ever seen because it does trigger an immunoresponse. And that if I have, you know, terminal butt cancer and this gives me a chance to beat it, I would give it a shot. But since it is so new and it has never been approved and there's never been a long-term study on what happens when you do this to a person and you're talking about a virus with a greater than 99% survival rate and for people in my age bracket in health like you're talking if like it is this, it, my odds of dying of it are no worse than my odds of dying of the flu then I'm not willing to take that risk but you trust them because they used a talisman Image indeed. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, I want to remind you guys, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You can see all my reviews there. I have categories alphabetically sorted. I have like my latest reviews, etc. I do not have an item of the day for you today. I kind of got behind the eight ball today, so uh, I didn't bring around a new item or even rerun a new, an older item. Um, but you can always help us. It's such a simple thing. You're probably going to buy something today, tomorrow, next week, online. Just remember when you're going to shop online, start at T-Spaz and you help us out. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. This song is uh, one I've always loved. It's by a guy named Craig Morgan, and it's called This Ain't Nothing. And it's the story of an old man in the middle of a tornado disaster. 
And one of, you know, this is a typical thing that happens. I mean, this isn't based on a true story, but yet it's based on a true story. Because it happens all the time. You have a person literally looking at what, what might be, in this case it ends up not being, but what might be the worst moment of their life. Their entire home is destroyed, and some stupid-ass reporter sticks a microphone in their face and says, what's it feel like? Oh, it feels good and rosy, bitch. That's how you feel like. You just get, get out of this man's face. But in this song, what the guy says basically is this ain't nothing. I lost a house. Back in Vietnam, I lost my best friend in my right hand. This ain't nothing. After 50 years of marriage, last year I lost my wife. I held her hand while she died. This ain't nothing. Lost a child in my life. This ain't nothing. And it does put things in perspective. But the first time I heard this song, I had one of those flashbacks, called it a vision, but it's not like a vision of the future or something. It's like something you've seen where you, but you can literally like see the image in your mind of when I drove through Alabama after the Birmingham tornado. It had been months, but it was a year that Dorothy and I, when we decided to go to Florida, instead of flying, we drove. It was when we were living in Arkansas. And we drove through and we hit the place where this tornado had crossed the highway. And this was a big tornado. If I remember right, this thing was close to a mile wide. And I had to pull over. Pulled over far enough that I could get out of the car, or the truck, I should say, without risking getting hit by somebody else driving. And I got out as close as I could tell about to the middle of this path. And it was, you could look both directions from the highway, across the highway in one direction and the other direction, and as far as you could see till the sky met the horizon. There wasn't a building standing. If there was, there was so much destruction, you couldn't tell. Like, I've seen a lot of tornado activity here in Texas, and usually what you see is a lot of stuff destroyed, but then there's a, you know, there's a house to the ground, and then there's a house next to it that's still standing, and a house over here has a roof off, and this one looks like it's barely touched. We get more of those shorter-duration bouncing tornadoes here, typically. This was big finger of God, as they call it. And there was none of that. Everything was flat, and it had been months, and it was still that way. And I sat there... And I empathized with these people and thought, if it was me and they said, you can go back and get whatever belongings you can at some point. Cause it, and you would have had to have been on the edge for that to be the case. You couldn't safely get to the center. And you sat there and you what would you even do? You can say it ain't nothing. And that's a defense mechanism that we have emotionally and psychologically. But seeing your home destroyed like this, it is something. And it's something no matter how much we plan, plan for the future, how many uh, plan Bs we have, how many redundancies we put in place. I think of my home here and everything I put into it. And if this ever happened to me, would I be able to use that psychological defense and realize whatever it is, if I'm still here, I can do it again and maybe do it better. And I think eventually you can, but I don't think it's as easy as it's made to seem to be here. 
And maybe the more you have suffered loss, the less another loss feels when it's not as bad as the prior. Maybe that's the case. But it did something else for me that day. I had already crossed over from, you know, small government Republican to flaming libertarian. I was probably an anarchist already. I just didn't know it because I didn't really understand what anarchism was yet. And I'd already got to the point where, like, whatever the next war is, I'm against that too. But sitting there that day, looking at those homes and thinking of those people, I wondered how many places had we done that to around the world, to people who didn't couldn't find us on a map with our bombs at incredible expense in American treasure. Things that could have been done here to help us were used elsewhere to destroy them. And we were okay with it because it was them. And hey, we won. Big foam finger number one and all. I think everybody should go to a place like that at least once. And you realize that there will be people that will stand up and say this ain't nothing, but it's something. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. He was standing in the rubble of an old farmhouse outside Birmingham. When some on the scene reporter stuck a camera in the face of that old man. He said, tell the folks, please, mister, what are you going to do now that this twister is taking all this dare to you? The old man just smiles. Boy, let me tell you something. This ain't nothing. He said, I lost my daddy when I was eight years old. I came in at the Kincaid mine. Left a big old home And I lost my baby brother My best friend in my left hand In a no-win situation In a place gone Vietnam And last year I watched my loving wife A 50 years west wind die And I held her hand Till her heart of gold stopped falling Ain't nothing. He said I lost my dad.